0: Hello, party people, and welcome to episode 48 of Cabernet and True Crime. This is the place where good wine and true crime come together. I'm your host, Jana, and I was going to lie and say that I was going to have the intro fixed by, well, not this week, obviously, but maybe by next week, but I definitely will not have it finished by next week. I'm not even going to lie to myself or to you, so that's just how it's going to be. Also, some housekeeping before this episode, if you follow me on Instagram, at Cabernet and True Crime... I announced that I made merch. Um, it was just something in my brain that needed to scratch and that needed to, that I needed to scratch and here we are. So I personally think they're super cute. Um, I made one, it has Penny on the front with little knives next to her, very cute. And then the other one has a cute little skull on the front with Cabernet and true crime on the back. And then the last one has some snakes which are all cool things that I enjoy. And so I'm really kind of excited about that. Um, the link to that is in my Instagram um, Linktree, or I guess if you go to the website, which is still, as it has been for the last four years, under construction, but this time for real under construction. It's also there if that's something that interests you. With that out of the way, hi, how was your week, Ben? Mine's been a little stressful, and that's okay. It took a minute to come here and do this, uh, but that's okay. And you know what? All that matters is that I I showed up and you showed up, and as long as you keep showing up, everything's good for everybody. With all that hullabaloo out of the way, I think we're ready to start. And this case itself is a little more mainstream than I typically enjoy going. Um, If you've been here for a while, I well, except for a few, generally try to pick the crimes that are more obscure and less covered because I feel like if everybody's covering Ted Bundy, I don't want to cover Ted Bundy because it's already been talked about and I I don't think that gets the point across, right? And also, it's, it's nobody wants to listen to 45 podcasts about Ted Bundy. I mean, at least I personally don't. <laughs> I want to hear about that weird, obscure crime that nobody's heard about, and that's uh, kind of the point of all this. So this week, like I said, the person we're covering this week is somebody a little more mainstream than I typically go with, but her story is just so infuriating that I figured, you know, why not? Why not let's cover it, right? So I had... Uh, if you know me, I do like to start the podcast with a little bit of mystery and then lead you into a story time because I like telling stories. This is a story time podcast about murder, right? And I I didn't know if it made more sense to start in the middle or like at the very beginning, trying to be super mysterious, you know. But I ultimately decided that you could really just start this story at any given point in time, and it's still gonna be just as crazy as if you started it at a different point in time. So today, we're going to start on May 19th, 1983. So on May 19th, 1983, Diane Downs pulled her bright red Nissan Pulsar into the ER driveway of the McKenzie williamette Hospital. The car was soaked in blood, and this happened near Springfield, Oregon. She was calm and cool-headed as she got into the hospital, stating that somebody had tried to carjack her car while she was driving with her three children. She said that she and the kids were out sightseeing at nighttime, (laughs) and which, first of all, giant red flag, because it it was, I, for some reason, didn't put the time here, but I think it was, like, after midnight for sure, because I remember it was a very weird time for her to be out with children, keeping them up past their bedtime, but also it was nighttime, and she was like, oh, yeah, we're we're totally just sightseeing. Like, are you? Because, you know, nighttime seems like a weird time to sightsee? Fine. She stated that at one point, the kids were laughing, talking, and awake, but also said that they were asleep when the next series of events happened. So, you know, either they were awake or they were sleeping, very opposite ends of the spectrum. The family had visited friends in Marcola, Oregon, and they were on their way home from that, but apparently, according to her, they'd probably taken, like, the long way home to, like, sightsee, which is a bullshit thing. Fine. Diane Downs was driving, And when she hit a secluded part of Old Mohawk Road, she saw a shaggy-haired man who came out of the bushes and into the middle of the road. He looked like he needed help, so Diane said she stopped her car to assist him. Absolutely not. Don't ever do that. If there's a man... If you're on a deserted highway, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't care. I, do I feel bad for that man if he really is a good, like, Samaritan, or not a good Samaritan, but if he's, like, really a good person who's stuck, that's fine. But if I'm little old me and I've got three kids in the car, no, negative. I am driving right on past you, shaggy-haired guy, because we are not... Today is not the day that I get murdered by you, right? Some Somebody's natural instinct should kick in and be like, no, this is sus, fine. So she stopped the car to assist him. Terrible choice. She said that they had been driving along the back roads, something she and the kids, quote, liked to do. Fine. They had only lived in Oregon for a little while. And I made a comment here, but I'm going to save it for myself because (laughs) it was going to give away some things. So the gang had moved to Oregon in April of that year. Her dad had pulled strings to get her a job there, and it was supposed to be a fresh start, and her dad meaning Diane Downs' dad. So flashback, we're at the ER. She first stated that as she was driving down the road, the shaggy-haired man flagged her down. He'd been standing in the middle of the road, and he looked like he needed help. Diane said she stopped for him, got out of the car, and had her keys taken out of the ignition. And... I don't know, this story is also not very clear, because why would somebody, I'm just sorry I'm having a crisis here, why Why would somebody in a dark, after after midnight in my head, I hope that's right, after dark time, in the middle of nowhere, with three kids in the car, you stop the car for a stranger, and then you get out of the car to talk to the stranger? I mean, good on her for taking the keys. Okay, but he could just kill you and take your keys. I mean, that's This story does not have a happy ending and it's from start to finish <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. I hope you're I hope you're catching on to the the general theme of this what this podcast is going to be about, okay? So Diane supposedly stopped on the side of the road for this man in the dark time. He, of course, demands her car from her and she says, no way man, I just bought this and then he apparently reached into the car and shot all three kids and shot at Diane twice but one of the shots missed she said she had pretended to throw the keys and that was when he shot her, which why would, th- that seems like a really weird first reaction, like your kids are getting shot and you throw the keys that doesn't make any sense but uh, we're, we're going to continue down this path so, she got back into the car and sped off to the hospital, but she just said she threw her key, or she pretended to throw the keys. Sorry, Jana. Well, you. Mostly, you, listener. Sorry. She pretended to throw the keys. Still a weird move, but that's fine. That's fine. So, she she claimed that she had sped off to the hospital, her words, and that is a lie, no matter how you hash it, because police have a witness testimony of someone who had been driving behind her red car and she had been driving so slow that the witness's speedometer wasn't even registering that he was moving so you're talking less than 10 miles an hour (laughs) so that's not exactly uh you know a speed worthy of getting your kids to the hospital so cheryl um so diane's daughter cheryl was in the front seat she was shot two times in the chest um and she was hit in the heart and lungs Christy was another daughter, she was in the back seat, she was shot two times in the chest as well, and then uh, Diane's son, Danny, was shot dead center in the back, uh, and Diane had been shot in the left arm. When Diane and her children reached the hospital, her emotions were off, she seemed cold, distant, and out of touch with what had happened, and I mean, fair enough, many of the first responders to the situation had assumed Diane was in shock from the situation, but it didn't take long for people to become suspicious. So let's jump back a little bit. Let's talk about how Diane ended up in Oregon. How about that? So Diane Downs was born on August 7th, 1955 in Phoenix, Arizona. Her real name is Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson, but she obviously doesn't go by Elizabeth. She testified at one point and then recanted that she was sexually abused by her father as a child she graduated from moon valley high school where she had met her husband husband steve downs on november 18 1973 she was 17 years old she married steve downs her husband uh, the couple ran away from home and eloped after high school she went to pacific coast baptist bible college uh, which used to be in orange california at least it was that's where it was when she went there The school isn't there anymore, and it isn't an accredited school. She only went to college for a year and was expelled after her first year there for promiscuous behavior. Later in her life, she would say that she did not marry for love because she did get married at 17. She said she didn't get married for love. She got married to get away from her father. Unfortunately, she went from um, having a domineering father to having a domineering husband, in her opinion. Christy Ann was born in 1974 and Cheryl Lynn was born in 1976. She had her first two kids, meaning Diane, and when she got pregnant a third time, she had an abortion. She had gone to a county fair sometime after and saw a signed poster of aborted fetuses and felt terrible about what she had done, so she felt she needed to have another kid, i.e., get pregnant again, to make it right. She and her husband Steve had already had a vasectomy. Well, her husband, Steve, had already had a vasectomy, so she seduced her friend, Mark Sager, to sleep with her. She was pregnant with his child, and that's when Danny came about. So, Steve Daniel was born in 1979. Uh, Danny was a product of an affair, as I mentioned previously, and the marriage between Diane and Steve ended after he was born. Diane said she had kids because she wanted to and never consulted Steve about it. He was upset because they got pregnant very young and he probably wanted to wait, or maybe he didn't want children at all, also a valid option. She said despite his feelings on the matter, he tried to be, oh, sorry, Steve. Steve said despite his feelings on the matter, he tried to be a present father, even for Danny, even though he knew Danny wasn't his child, which I think would probably be why um, I'm assuming Steve was the dad, so Steven was what she named the son, even though he goes by Danny, even though it wasn't Steven's child. That's math. Uh, so Steve claimed that he he didn't really want to be a father, and he really, he knew Steve and well, Danny wasn't his child, but he tried to be a present father. And he actually said that Diane treated the kids, quote, like crap. There were also sources that said the children expressed a fear of their mother before the attack happened. So after... Diane got divorced from Steve. She had a relationship with a married man named Robert Knickerbocker, a.k.a. Nick. He was a co-worker with her at the post office in Arizona where her dad was the postmaster. The relationship was kept secret. He didn't want children and particularly didn't want to raise Diane's children. But he said that she was stalking him, sending him letters every day, which he sent back unopened. He expressly stated he did not want to be with Diane, but she was more or less certifiably stalking him. In 1982, Diane gave birth to a daughter, which she named Jennifer, through surrogacy. She was paid $10,000 for the kid. After the surrogacy, but before the murder, she had been in the Washington Post uh, about an article about the surrogacy. So it, was, it made the, the local news that she was a surrogate mother. So her trip to Oregon had been a fresh start. She was hoping Nick would leave his wife and join her in Oregon, which obviously didn't happen. So, flashback now. We're back at the hospital again. She has driven her kids to the Mackenzie-Williamette Hospital, and the first person she called, to my understanding, was Robert Knickerbocker. Nick would later say that he thought Diane was capable of killing his wife if he wouldn't leave her willingly, so he was super happy when she just moved to Oregon because (laughs) he was like, I just want you to leave me alone and reconcile my marriage with my wife, And police really didn't know anything about her past. They knew that she had behaved strangely and that maybe she wasn't telling the whole truth. But it's about to get really bad for Diane. So, evidence-wise, there was no blood spatter on the driver's door. There was no gunshot residue on the door. Diane had owned the same gun as the murder weapon but failed to tell police. The gun was never found. Unfired gun casings were found inside Diane's home, and they matched the gun. Steve and Robert said that she had purchased the gun back in Arizona. After the attack, the police department took Diane along the road to find out where the attack happened, and when they got there, they noticed it was the darkest, most isolated part of the road. So that night, Diane's daughter Cheryl was pronounced deceased upon arrival. Her two other children were in critical condition. One week after that night where almost all of her children were in this awful attack, this, you know, brutal attack. Diane, and if you know anything about this case, you've seen this video. Diane is reenacting the crime for police. There's, well, I, there's a video, uh, like, it's hard to explain. So there's a video, and you can you can look it up. It's on YouTube, but it's her like, reenacting this crime, but she's pretending like there's another guy there. And you can just tell she's hamming it up. She loves it. It is absolutely disgusting to watch. And like I said, if you, if you are into true crime at all, and you know anything about this case, you know what this video is I'm talking about. She is laughing and having a grand old time. And I know, like, as humans, people handle stuff differently, right? Sometimes People after tragedy, I, I don't know, because the problem is is that a lot of the time people expect people in traumatic situations to be acting a certain way. And this isn't, I don't want to be critical of how she reacted in this situation. And there's nothing judgmental in my opinion. But she's, according to police and p- news people and everybody else involved in this kind of situation, can agree that she's not acting right. That's just the end of the end of the situation. She's not grieving. She's not distraught. She has the camera on her and you can tell she loves it. And mind you, this is only a week, one week after this happened. So one of her children is deceased in this awful, brutal accident and her two other kids are still in the hospital under wildly critical conditions. Like you don't even know if they're going to make it. A normal, and I use that term lightly, but a I'm trying to think of the right word to use, but uh, not normal. But you would think a mother would want to be at the hospital with her children, not laugh and giggling and flirting with the like videographer during this video, right? It doesn't like that. Those two pieces don't make sense in this case. And you know, you could you could argue and say, "Oh, Jana, but it was just it was just one time. Like you know, maybe she was just." Feeling in a silly, goofy mood, and it just it's happened to be recorded. But no, I'm going to shoot that down right now. Within a month of the crimes, she has spoken to every single news person she possibly can. There are numerous recordings and interviews, and in almost every single one, she's smiling and happy. And her story's changing. She, quote, couldn't keep her mouth shut. She's talked to the news non-stop with her three-year-old Danny. He's paralyzed from the chest down. Her other daughter, eight-year-old Christy, the one who ultimately, the daughter who survived, she suffered a stroke and she can't even speak anymore. And your seven-year-old daughter's dead. And you're chatting it up and having a great time and you are not mourning. and your story is changing and it's just, when you know the situation, it's disgusting. And I think if you Google any videos about Diane Downs, you'll see the ones I'm talking about, and they are, if you're a mother or a parent or a step-parent, disgusting. Absolutely disgusting, because those are your children, right? Like, those are your fucking kids, and this is how you're reacting? It just, it's not right. And there's actually a clip from one interview that actually made me want to vomit, because Diane, in so many words, said that because of the scar on her arm from the bullet hole, she would never forget that day. And this is a, a verbatim quote from Diane Downs that I pulled from this video, and I'm going to read it to you. Everybody says, you sure were lucky. Well I don't feel lucky. I couldn't tie my shoes for about two damn months. I was, it was very painful, it's still very painful, the scar is going to be there forever. I'm going to remember that night for the rest of my life whether I want to or not i don't think i was very lucky i think my kids were lucky if i had been shot the way they were we all would or yeah if i had been shot the way they were we all would have died what the fuck diane (laughs) she said that on the news she said that on the news i can't i can't even so when she got to the hospital She had a colorful beach towel around her arm to presumably staunch the bleeding for herself, but no first aid was given to her children by her. And this is a quote from, I don't remember where I got this quote from, so I'm sorry in advance, but it definitely, it said, the longer she talked, the more guilty she looked. And that's so unbelievably accurate. All this up until now is quite suspicious, but it's really coincidental i mean it's at the end of the day it's just like shitty mom behavior none of this is a crime really it just showed she was a narcissistic um and very self-centered and definitely has some type of undiagnosed personality disorder i'm not a psychiatrist but you can well that's a spoiler alert but you could also probably assume that so police find diane's personal diary And this one is full of hundreds of personal essays proclaiming a love for the married man named Nick, who was a former co-worker, as I'll remind you, who was married and wanted nothing to do with her. She had written him every single day, like in her diary, these love poems. He did not want to be a father to her children, and Diane definitely knew that. So in February of 1984, Diane Downs is arrested, And she shows up to court wildly pregnant, which if that's not what you thought I was going to say, good. She shows up to court. She's super pregnant. So as a reminder, these crimes happened in May of 1983. It's now February 1984, and she is really pregnant. So as you could assume, well, you can do the math on that. Her reasoning for getting pregnant was because she, quote, "...missed her kids, and children are so easy to conceive. No one knows who the dad is, but Anne Rule said she knew who he was and had promised to keep the idea of the man secret." But she tells us the story of what happened. And if you were curious as to how I know that, which seems like a random tidbit of information, there is a book by Anne Rule that specifically covers this case. It's a really good book. I think you should read it. Very enlightening. I'm really just summarizing it for you here, but if you want to read the whole book, I'll give you the name of it at the end. So, apparently Diane had seduced one of the men on her mail route with a bottle of whiskey and a bag of pot. She'd been tracking her cycle so she knew that she would get pregnant at that time. So she basically timed it all out. So all she had to do was have sex once and hopefully was going to get pregnant. And obviously it worked. So during her uh, trial, apparently the song Hungry Like a Wolf by Duran Duran was playing. And this is apparently something Diane told the investigators. Otherwise, how would anybody know this? And at the trial, they played that song. Probably to get Diane's reaction and just see how she responded. And it seems like a weird tactic, but like weird sidebar. I know there is a song that I am not capable of listening to, um, which is Good Riddance by Green Day. I know it's not a sad song, but it's more of a fuck you song. But it was the last song... I heard it on the car ride home from the last time I saw my grandma alive, and it's a really emotional memory, and Green Day is one of my most favorite bands, but I haven't listened to that song really since then, and I actively turn it off if it comes on, like at the grocery store. I can't turn it off at the grocery store, but I'll talk to myself or like, you know, I will ignore it if it's on because even after so many years, I still have a very visceral reaction to that song because it makes me think of that one really traumatic moment in my life. So, you can imagine, they're playing the song that all three of your children were brutally attacked to, and one of your children was left dead, one left paralyzed, and one has spent the last nine months recovering and relearning how to speak so she can testify in court. And if, you know, if you loved your children, if you really loved your children, I would imagine hearing that song would be pretty fucking devastating. But no. (laughs) Not for fucking Diane Downs at the sound of the song she started bobbing her head to the music and rubbing her belly and she looked like she was just hearing you know just a little a little jam that she could beep bop around to oh. okay there's that have that have that picture in your head right And I can say from personal experience like that is not. That is not how somebody who'd actually, like I said before, you don't want to like judge how people grieve for things. But everything about this put together, it's like this. The thing is that Diane, honestly, had she acted with even a little bit of compassion, which mind you, she probably doesn't have because she attacked her three children, right? So obviously she's not thinking with a right mind, and she's obviously not compassionate towards her kids, and she's obviously not a rationally thinking human because if she had showed any amount of compassion and not acted the way she did at all this case would probably still be cold but because Diane acted so bizarrely and so just off the wall obviously all the attention went towards her and i mean i'm happy she did i'm happy she did this because you know she's no longer well i'm not trying to ruin this for you but she's no longer out on the streets she doesn't have her children anymore And she can't be a mom to people because obviously she's out of her mind. (laughs) Like, so it's, I don't know, it's like the devil's, playing devil's advocate because like you're happy she got caught, but at what cost? You know, does that make sense? I hope that makes sense to you. Okay. So flashback, (laughs) sorry for that rant. Flashback to we're at the trial. Nine-year-old Christy has worked for the last nine months to recover from her stroke. And she takes a stand at her mother's trial against her mother. And when asked who shot her that night, Christy only had to say two words. My mom. In Diane's defense, her bushy-haired man theory completely out the window because, of course, that changed. Because she couldn't keep her goddamn story straight. So it went from the bushy-haired man to two men in in ski masks who knew her name to her thinking that Steve, her ex-husband, put a hit on her, she really Casey anthony that fucking case and tried every, she was floundering for everything she could underneath the sun, but her daughter said the two most damning things she ever could have said, and thank God she could say the things that she could say. On June 17th, 1984, Diane is guilty on all counts. The jury debated on her crime for literally 36 hours. During her sentencing, she was diagnosed with three different personality disorders, um, narcissism, histrionic, and antisocial. In so many words, she's a sociopath, and she was sentenced to life in prison plus 50 years. Her two children, her two remaining children, were adopted by the prosecuting prosecuting attorney in Diane's case. Diane was so delusional that she thought she would get to keep the baby she was pregnant with, saying, I'd like to see them try to take this baby away, and... (laughs) Of course they did. Uh, So 10 days after her sentencing, she was taken to the maternity ward of a hospital and induced into labor. She named a little girl Amy Elizabeth and was allowed to spend a few hours with her before the girl was handed over to her adopted parents. And Diane was shuttled back to her prison cell. The baby was smuggled away so the media couldn't get pictures or see her. And I think their new parents call her Rebecca. Also, all pretty names. Two surviving children were adopted by Fred Hughey, like I said, the prosecutor uh, in her case, and that happened in 1986. So Diane Downs, if you thought like that's where the story ends, no, (laughs) that's that's not where the story ends because Diane Downs escaped from prison. She had layered a bunch of clothes so she wouldn't get caught on the barbed wire. She hid under a truck and removed her sweatshirt, which was found underneath said truck, Security had heard the alarm go off, but because the wiring is faulty and this had happened before, didn't think much of it until Diane went missing. There was a 10-day manhunt, and Diane was found less than a mile away from the prison in a small, dumpy apartment. So yeah, to put dates and places on that, she escaped from the Oregon Women's Correctional Center on July 11th, 1987, and she was recaptured on July 21st, and for this, she got an additional five years added to her sentence. Uh, She was then transferred to the New Jersey Department of Corrections, uh, so she couldn't attack her children. That's basically how that worked out. They didn't want her to be in any vicinity to where her children were, which was probably a very good decision on their part, truthfully. Based off the rules at the time, she would have to serve 25 years before she would be considered for parole. And because of the law when she was sentenced, uh, she was originally allowed to apply for parole every two years after her first. So in 2008, she tried to parole for the first time. She still claimed her innocence, saying that she had always been innocent and that her story had never changed. Unfortunately for you, Diane, there are clips on YouTube, actual literal compilation videos made of you lying every time you lied. (laughs) It's literally just a mashup of every single story you ever told, and it is documented proof available to the public of every time you lied. So, try again. So, obviously, she was denied. <laughs> parole. And Lane County, that's the county in Oregon, he, the, the, the DA for that county wrote to the parole board saying, quote, Downs continues to fail to demonstrate any honest insight into her criminal behavior Even after her convictions, she continues to fabricate new versions of events under which the crimes occurred. So she was denied parole in 2008 and then was allowed to try again in 2010, and no surprise, she was denied again. And apparently she was supposed to have another parole hearing in 2021 because after her continuous applying every two years and based off the DA's thoughts on the matter they changed the rules so she could only apply every 10 years now. It's the longest deferral allowed for like in between parole hearings. So, and it's for the cited reason was for reasons that include her failure to demonstrate understanding of what led to her crimes and her lack of remorse or empathy. So, uh, in 2021, she was up for parole again and she got denied again and so, she is still in prison. She is 66 years old at the time of this recording. And I did do a little, a little glimpse, because once again, they were kids, and they don't need to have their privacy invaded, but there was a small article to say that uh, Christy, the little girl who testified against her mom, is still thriving. She has a slight speech handicap, but that ain't nothing. She had a son born in 2005, and she has a daughter who she named after her sister, Cheryl. Danny and Christy are both college graduates and for the most part live really normal lives, so that is awesome for them. And the book that this came from, uh, just so you know, it's called Small Sacrifices by Ann Rule. Like I said, it was a really good book. Which, fun fact, Diane Downs wrote a book <laughs> called Best Kept Secrets. It's the rebuttal to Ann Rule's book. Uh, apparently Diane, it was her attempt to give, quote, her side of the story and why she was innocent. And I can tell you that I read Anne Rule's book and I did not and will not read Diane Downs' book. (laughs) I don't really want to know what she has to say. And there's also a movie under the same name that features Farrah Fawcett, Small Sacrifices. I haven't seen that either, but the book was good. And if you like reading more than hearing me talk, even though you've already done it, Small Sacrifices is a good book. And with that being said, guys... That was today's episode. That's everything I had. Uh, Diane Downs is a real piece of work. And good thing for everybody, she is in prison. And she does not understand why she's there. And that is upsetting. (laughs) But her kids are safe. The world is safe, from her at least. And that is all that we need to ask for. So, uh... Yeah, that's, that's all I have. Uh, follow me on Instagram if you have one. I also have a page on Facebook, but I neglect it, so I don't say to follow that. And uh, I will catch you next Tuesday. Very exciting. <laughs> Adios.